0: Part 2 of the Sword Polisher's Review Hanging on to the threads of traditional Kung Fu Part 2 of his book, The Foundation of Kung Fu Topics cover, for example, mapping the Kung Fu DNA Understanding and developing a constitution Developing power And the use of power in different styles The role of flexibility in your martial arts This section of Xu's book is one that draws considerable attention because as a reader you think you are Poe and you found the secret scroll of Kung Fu. Rather it is the fundamental nuances that you should expect in almost any traditional Chinese martial arts school. You're going to see for example the stances, the theories, and the common denominators that you'll find in most Chinese martial arts. Similar to what we discussed in the series the bubishi returns to his Chinese roots. Xu uses another phrase that resonated with me as it took me back to the early 90s. I asked Sifu one day, why do we practice this way? Remember now, my formal education is swamped with physical medicine, athletic performance, etc. And oftentimes I would ask him questions like, why do we practice this way? Because it felt like I was climbing the mountain but not from the same side I had ever heard it described to me before. Uh, so it, it always felt like I was doing something heading in the right direction, but I had never been on this kind of path before. And usually the response was, is that you're not only learning to do the act, you're learning to develop your personal constitution. And that makes sense, right? This country's built around its constitution. As Abraham Lincoln once stated, our rights and freedom to bear arms is not to overthrow our Constitution. It is to overthrow men who would pervert that Constitution. So, what is your personal Constitution? If we were going to look at you from the core, inside to out, what are you built around? The old adage, if you don't stand for something, then you'll stand for anything, begins to resonate my mind in the background. Traditional Kung Fu stands for something, yundong, and that's a main ingredient. Part two of this book gives you some real recipe core instructions, such as the role of flexibility, understanding reeling silk, power generation, style specifics, so you can better interpret the role of Tai Chi, Bakua, and Xing Yi, and the blend of traditional Kung Fu. In part three, it's about the myth and reality of Kung Fu styles. The myth of Shaolin Kung Fu. Counterfeit Kung Fu. Then an argument that many of my students will make is, why can't all these styles be one? Why can't you just have one Tim Fu? What are the benefits and problems of making a lifelong commitment to one style? There's also going to be the argument of internal and external Kung Fu. And Shu will walk you through a historical summary of how and why this argument arose from the information that he had at the time and why he doesn't agree with the path it took, which is the same argument we have, as that, you know, internal Kung Fu has nothing to do with magical energy that you're going to emit or any of that other kind of stuff. It had a very precise reason and the recipe of understanding Yundong all Chinese martial arts have an internal and external quality. That is, all styles that still qualify for realistic martial arts anyway. Secret acupoint attacks, empty chi blasts, and no touch knockouts notwithstanding. (laughs) All right, so with the Shaolin Myths, first I'm gonna send you back to our series on the academic research of Amir Shahar and his amazing work we had several episodes dedicated to that research. Shu, who was a predecessor to the work that Shahar did, made some alarming challenges for the 1990s that was also during the time that Shaolin was trying to rebrand itself into this tourist attraction. What you'll find is that Shu will resign to the fact that the Shaolin was a famous Zen temple and that you could have learned martial arts there, but not because of its martial monk sanctuary legends, but because many of the monks were, quote, killers, rapists, and thieves, end quote. He continues that if these crimes were not unpardonable, So it appears that killing and raping at the time could have been a pardonable offense. But treason was not. If the crime was pardonable, these men who often had previous military and martial arts backgrounds would then teach their martial arts there at the temple. Shu also points to the secret societies aligning themselves with the Shaolin. Many of these secret societies were discussed in detail, and how they align themselves both in country and abroad to operate under the radar. And there's a whole series titled "The Role of Secret Societies" here at Kung Fu Podcast Library. Shu also credits Tang Hao in his effort to shed light on many of the myths. So when Tang Hao wrote his book, it was incredibly impactful, but there was a major problem. And it didn't matter how sincere and effective that work was. The book was written in classical Chinese, which made it unreadable to a majority of the Chinese people. One of my favorite portions of this book is uh, an argument we hear many times, can't all these styles be one? Why can't we just combine them all into Chinese martial art? Well, I mean, that's not true in karate. It's not true in probably several other systems of uh, martial arts. Uh, But for us, the first argument is then why not do everything else that way too? You know, one math class, no algebra, no geometry, just math. So, we could do that for dance. We can throw in the, all the corporeal experiences. There's no foxtrot, there's no West Coast swing. It's just dance. See, when you put it out there like that, it almost doesn't make sense because each one teaches you a little something and you might feel better in one style than another. As we pointed out before, and as the Bubishi, the Wu Ji points to, each style had a different theory and a different emphasis, just like the different maths do. Shu states that historically a style could have originated in a village because of a particular implement or weapon that they were good at handling. In regards to learning one style or not, Shu feels that learning one style and efforting to master it has its benefits, though he didn't follow that path himself. When you go searching for Chinese martial arts, you're at the mercy of trying to find a qualified instructor who can tell you whether or not he teaches for health, whether he teaches for show or if he teaches combat or if he can show you the styles and understanding of all three and is willing to take a couple of years or so to help you learn to understand it and as well as even possibly master it my take on this agrees with the point that learning too many styles has its downsides I'm not saying you can't learn from different styles if I look at karate I might learn something or jujitsu I might learn something but I'm not necessarily trying to master those styles I have my style I'm trying to understand it and continuing to uh, master the five styles that I teach I don't really feel the need to go beyond my five styles, to try to master those. But I really enjoy learning from folks like Ian Abernathy, Troy Price, and seeing how they interpret some of the things that they do. Uh, It's just important to remember that if you have a style of martial art, that you really try to dig into it and understand it. And if you feel comfortable with that, then grab a hold of something a little bit more. In part four, a really hot topic sometimes even today, so remember this was 40-some years ago, the role of forms in Kung Fu. Is it necessary? The problems of forms without content, which is always a big deal. Analyzing your beauty. Forms and function. Two-person drills that are nothing more than performing art. Shu states, quote, Kung Fu has a step-by-step complete training system of which forms are a part, end quote. He defines the process of learning single techniques, then later connecting them through difficult transitions, which is part of what the form is designed to do. When I'm teaching, this process is called walking hands. In context, walking a hand includes taking a technique and practicing it with stances and stepping and motion, the whole thing. As I read through this, perhaps a full context of the role of forms in Chinese martial arts is warranted. This would need to be with some clear understanding of what a style is specifically trying to teach the practitioner and the purpose of the form in that process. In Part 5, Mind and Body Training, It's all about finding your balance, learning to see, and the risks of special training. Part five is gonna focus on the learning environment of a Chinese martial arts class. If you were gonna walk into an orderly training class, what would that look like? What would it sound like? Where would the students be focused? This was an interesting experience for myself because you find yourself being required to pay attention to exactly the things opposite of what you believe you should be. This is where the concepts, if you wanted to raise something up, you must think down, were required to be physically interpreted. Another one of these Taoist terms that you were trying to interpret is, when you come from the front, you don't see its face. When you come from the rear, you don't see its back. These brain tinglers were not there for philosophical exercise. They were theories that you have to be able to demonstrate as you exercise your Kung Fu. If you walked into a traditional Chinese martial arts class, you would see and hear that kind of focused labor. Part six, the soul of Kung Fu. Real Kung Fu is basically you use it or you're going to lose it. He has a subsection there titled Use Your Opponent's Head, Not Your Own and as well, The Nine Doors of Kung Fu. Shu states that the soul of Kung Fu is in its usage. This combative usage is not always a natural act either. Much of a martial artist's practice is to ingrain action and responses. We practice to make the unnatural natural. If the soul of Kung Fu is its usage, then the progressive development of sparring is essential to the development of the soul of Kung Fu. Chinese martial arts have progressive exercises that are designed to help you improve the soul of Kung Fu. Whether that's various energy exercises, Qi Shao exercises, or Tui Shao exercises, push hands, it doesn't matter. There's progressive exercises to help you understand that sparring is essential to really understanding your Chinese martial arts. This part of the book is probably the first part I would suggest you read if you're Truly trying to find out how Shu defines aspects of the Chinese martial arts that are present. If you are practicing traditional Kung Fu theories, knocking on the nine doors is a way of describing how a Chinese martial artist uh, looks at the engagement, protects himself, where are you trying to move to and why are you trying to move there, Uh, progressing through the door until you have achieved your ultimate objective various styles of martial arts may emphasize one aspect of the door or the next, even though they may all work on some parts of it. It's kind of like wrestlers work on one zone of training. Boxers work on another zone. Kicking works in a different zone. Understanding the nine doors gives you a whole deeper level of understanding how to apply your martial arts. Now, the Tibetan Lama Pai that I teach has a different twist on the concepts of attack and defense, but it still is going to use some concepts of spacing and timing because that's one of his four principles. This particular chapter is also one that will stimulate intellectual debate because it requires a physical interpretation of the theories. Shu lists eight different things that, if you see it in sparring, they are not practicing Kung Fu. They may be practicing another style, but Chinese martial arts have particular things that you should be seeing in that practitioner. For example, extending a hand and then bringing it back is not usually something that you're going to see in traditional Kung Fu. If a hand goes out, it continues to work its way into different areas in order to make yourself effective. Part seven of the book, Masters and Students, gets into some really interesting and debatable um, topics. For example, belt levels for Kung Fu or, and the proper Kung Fu attitude. I did not make a lot of remarks in my annotations in this particular chapter. Uh, for example, how to choose a teacher, which emphasizes what you've heard for, hear me say many times. Have an idea of what you're looking for. If you want to learn self-protection martial arts or improve your health or you're learning to perform then you need to know that. And uh, you might even be just looking to practice a healthy way of life and a philosophical way of life and living in principle. That's what you are looking for and you want a teacher that will help you understand how to do that through your training. Shu states clearly, time and patience are required to learn Kung Fu. And these qualities are necessary in seeking out your teacher. Shu also talks about selecting a style and how to start with one that fits your body type. And to be honest, this is sometimes a difficult dilemma for me. I can see and have a general idea of what style would be more adaptable quickly for the student, what might suit them better faster. However, I can also tell what they need as well. Then that becomes a match of giving them enough to get them started on a good path and getting the right energy and thoughts into their practice, but yet challenging them enough to smooth them out as they go along. Now, the author's words on the belts and Kung Fu is also an interesting topic, particularly if you dial it back to the time that they were written. And his argument, and I agree, is that there should be a way of measuring a student in the Chinese martial arts and by the style that they have chosen. And we have a way of doing that. Um, And he talks about that also in the book. Then the last section, part eight, Kung Fu Today and Tomorrow. He's going to discuss the complete Kung Fu practitioner. What is that all about? And what are some of the lessons of fighting? In his last remaining pages, Shu has refreshing comments on these individuals who in the 1980s found that Sifu was not enough of a title for them. They were people who had appointed themselves master and even frowned upon being referred to as a Sifu. If you are looking for a teacher and they expect you to call them master or grandmaster, I suggest you go somewhere else. Find someone who is proud of being a teacher of the Chinese martial arts instead of a political grandstand and required ass-kissing for a demigod title. Perhaps the one thing I like about Adam Xu's work is that he took a position and shared it with the references he could find at the time and a traditional understanding of the Chinese martial arts. Today, when I share similar positions with you, they are usually backed with scientific approaches to data collection, historians who unearthed Steely's anthropological information or uncovered documents since the time Xu wrote his work. So, Shu took a very unique position in a time where the martial arts boom was on many things that were not traditional Chinese martial arts. It was TV, games, movies, sporting competitions, and etc. Many of the things that he writes about as being important in the Chinese martial arts are the things that I found very important to me and as part of the reason I continue to try to pass them down. I would recommend this book as a solid read for anyone who would like to have a workman's approach to Chinese martial arts and get a realistic idea of what you can expect to gain. Thank you for joining me today. Have a great practice, and I look forward to talking with you again real soon.